You've probably heard the saying at some point in your life, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You heard that before? You've probably heard that. It's a very, very old saying. It's somewhat timeless in a way. Variations of this saying go back as far as Emperor Marcus Aurelius, back like the second century. So that's a long ways back. But the most well-known version of that saying comes from an eccentric English priest by the name of Charles Colton from the 1800s where he said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when you copy somebody, you're showing that you like the way that they are. And out of a sense of admiration for that person, you are imitating that, that individual's you know, actions or, or mannerisms, maybe even their values, the way that they say things, words that they express. Perhaps you've caught yourself doing that. Have you ever caught yourself imitating another person? Maybe it snuck up on you. There's a saying that somebody at work uses all the time, a little catchphrase, and then you catch yourself at home using that over dinner table one night. Or maybe there's a joke somebody tells, and you just keep telling that joke over and over and over again, and you kind of forget who you told it to, and people are like, come on, man, I know the joke. I've heard it 10 times now. But you're imitating it time and time and time again. Or many of us have gone through this, where we swore we would never say the things that our parents said, but sure enough, we catch ourselves one day looking at our kids saying, I sound like my mother, I sound like my father. <laughs> I say those things to my kids. Perhaps you've caught other people imitating you, actually. Now, this can be very flattering, depending upon who it is. If it's somebody that you want to imitate and you want to have flatter you, that's fantastic. But if you're a, you know, a teenager and it's your little brother imitating you, it can be kind of annoying because they're probably making fun of you and mocking you, which is where mom can come in and remind them, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery, which will make your little brother stop because he's not trying to flatter you in what he's doing in that moment. You know, back in the golden age of Hollywood, one of the biggest stars at the time was a guy named Charlie Chaplin. You've probably heard of Charlie Chaplin before. And he was so famous and so popular with his antics in these silent movies that he starred in for a lot of his career that people started to dress like him. And they started to act like him, kind of that, that hobo-type outfit that he had back in those classic movies. And it went to the point where it was so popular and so many people were dressing up and acting like him, they actually started holding contests to see who could do it the best. And so one day, as the story goes, Charlie Chaplin was walking down the street and he saw an advertisement for one of these contests. He thought, I know, I got, this be funny. I'm going to enter the contest. And so he entered the contest and he, he put on his, you know, his, his outfit and he did his little, his little uh, act in front of the judges. And he thought, this would be funny because when they announce the winner, I'll be like, hey guys, it's me. And all my fans will be like, oh my gosh, it's him and whatnot. The only problem is that he came in second place at the contest. He, somebody else actually did a better job of imitating him than he could do himself. But as the saying goes, imitation is the highest form of flattery. At times, however, imitation can be something else. Imitation can also be simply mimicking, kind of like a parrot. We've all seen parrots, right, who, who hear sounds and they just kind of repeat them. And they just kind of mimic it. And, and, and there's a big difference here because there's no admiration. The parrot doesn't admire you and therefore copy what's going on. It's just this sense of meaningless repetition and meaningless copying of what it hears and sees to very different outcomes. For example, there's a story of a guy who went to an estate auction, and as he was at this auction, one of the lots that came up to bid on happened to be a parrot. He thought, you know, it, it comes, it's a parrot, it's got some food left over, it comes with a cage, and my wife has always wanted a parrot. What better chance than to buy this now? 
So he starts bidding. And he starts bidding on this parrot, but it's a popular item. A lot of people have wanted parrots for a long time. And so he starts bidding, but then the bidding keeps going up. And he really wants it. And he had his limit, but he goes, I'm, I'm going to push her. I'm going to get this parrot. So he bids and gets outbid and bids, gets outbid. Eventually gets to the point where he spent more than he ever intended to do, but he won the parrot. And he's so excited to take this home to his wife so that she can have this, this pet that she's wanted forever. And so he goes to the auctioneer to pay the price. And he says, man... I sure hope that parrot can talk for the price I paid for it. To which the auctioneer said, oh, don't worry. Who do you think was bidding against you? <laughs> so, in a biblical sense, there's a difference between imitation and mimicking as well. It can look the same. It can look exactly the same. But there's a difference. There's a difference in outcome. There's a difference in sincerity. You see, within our spiritual lives, within the church, it is possible to mimic what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This can happen out of social pressure, just a, a desire to fit in. These are my people I've identified with, and so I need to fit in. And out of that desire, rather than imitation, or sorry, rather than admiration, we're simply doing impersonation as we sort of mimic what we see around us. But imitation, the way that Paul uses it in his letters, is different. You see, in Paul's writings, there's a few times he uses this word imitation. Example, in, in today's passage. And, and it's this idea that there's a desire to reflect the example put before us, not because we just want to fit in, but because we see it as valuable. We see it as being worthy to shape our lives. We see it as being valuable enough to shape our identities by and to be identified with it. That's why in Paul's letter, one of his letters to the church in Corinth, he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He's not saying be imitators of me alone because I've got it all figured out, folks. He's saying I am striving to imitate Christ and to the degree of which I am successful at imitating Christ, genuinely imitating Christ, do the same as you see that happening within me. Don't follow me. Follow Christ who I am seeking to follow. He's saying, I'm calling you to see the high value, to see the necessity, to, to have a desire from within your core being that you will be shaped into the image of Christ. Not just to fit in, but to actually have a difference within the core of your being. Not mere copycats. Not just being a copycat, but a genuine imitation. Which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. But it's not about appearances. It's about the core of our being. And so today, as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we see how he's writing to these people who are identified as those who are in Christ. He's writing, he's writing to believers here. That's who he's addressing. He's writing to followers, to people who are in the church. He's writing to the church. And he's trying to explain to them, how do you live as followers of Christ in the world that's very different this is the playbook of living the Christian life in the world around us that looks different. And as he opens chapter 5, he opens by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what follows in the verses after this is he, ad he directly addresses those who claim to be followers of Christ. Therefore, those who are in the body, those who are in the church. He spoke about those who were in the world earlier. He made reference to those who are far from the promises of God. He made reference to what it's like to be separate from church. He, he made reference to what it's like before you were in Christ, you were far from the promises of God. He spoke about that earlier. Now, it's important we understand this, that he's speaking to people 
who are followers of Christ, people who have taken that stand to say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the crucified, buried, resurrected, exalted, glorified God, and through him I have forgiveness of sins and eternal hope. People who have identified themselves with that. That's who he's writing to. That's who the message is for. And we have to stress that because sometimes we blur the lines here. And sometimes we expect people who have not aligned themselves with that to live like they have, which would be unreasonable. There's all sorts of authoritative readings out there that we don't put authority behind. If somebody came in and said, hey, I was reading in this book the other day that you should do such and such. Unless you believe in the authority of that author, you're probably not going to put much merit behind it and follow it. And so who he's writing to here are people who have said, yes, there is authority in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is authority in the teachings of Scripture that are there. And if I believe there is authority in those things and I've aligned myself with those things, then I need to live according to where I have placed my authority. That's who he's writing to, not to the world who has yet to understand the truth of Jesus Christ. So as he directly speaks to them, he gives a list of behaviors and attitudes that are displeasing to God in a hope of pointing them in the right direction. And so the challenge we find in this passage is not just a question about alignment. It's not just a matter of, of do, your, do your ideas and thoughts align with what we see in this passage. It's, it's not about just mimicking what we see written in the paper on written on these pages, it's a matter of, are we striving to be genuine imitations of what is put before us? Now in the body, people will sort of mimic these things. It says it, so I'll do it. I come to the church, and that's what happens, and that's what people do, and these are my people, so I'm just going to follow along. That can be religiosity, not relationship, not genuine Inclusion in the body of Christ. You see, genuine imitation is a belief that God's way is better. It's aligning with those beliefs. But going a step further to say out of devotion for Christ, out of belief that not only is his way better, but I want to live that way, we then are shaped by those things and allow ourselves to be shaped more and more into the image of Christ. And so, as Paul opens this passage, he draws our attention to three areas of life and where we can be imitators of God. And the first one he points out to us is love. Is that we are to be imitators of God's love. And in verse 2, he gives this command that we are to walk, that we are, we are to walk and to live this, this consistent, purposeful practice. To walk through our lives like Jesus did, with the love of Christ. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, it says in verse 2. Now the way Paul describes this love of Jesus Christ that we are to imitate has a few aspects to it. You see, first of all, we, we know from this verse, but also through the Gospels, that Jesus loved all people. He loved everyone. And time and time again, as people encountered Jesus, as they were drawn to him, there is never this sense of, does he like me? Does he love me? People knew Jesus loved them. Before he ever confronted an area of their life that needed to be changed, he made sure that they knew that he loved them. Now, sometimes he loved them so much, he eventually had to confront them on some things where they were straying on and wandering on. But it was always done within that context of knowing that I love you, and because I love you, I, I got to call this out in your life because I can't just leave you living in that situation when I know there's a better way. 
These are the examples that we see Jesus living out. And the same happens for all of us here today too. Jesus loves everybody here. Jesus loves everybody who is not here as well. And he wants them to know that he loves them. So that as that relationship grows, we can then speak into each other's lives and help us grow more and more into the image of Christ. But his love, we see from this verse, was also sacrificial. And we know that simply from, from the action that, that Jesus gave himself up upon the cross. What did Paul say a couple of weeks back in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, because of his great love for us, we have been made alive with Christ. Because of his great love for us, Christ went to the cross and paid the price for our sins. And because of God's great love for us, that was received and we've been aligned with that forgiveness if we choose to step into it. And now we des- he didn't do this because we deserved it. He didn't do this, express this greatest expression of love because we deserved it or for his benefit. You see, love was within the nature of God. It says scripture, God is love, period. It's in his nature, it's in his being. So it wasn't out of his benefit that Jesus went to the cross, it was out of his nature of deep love for all people, he went to the cross for our benefit so that we may gain. So how do we summarize God's love in a very simplistic manner? Well, Jesus, as we look at his life, we can say that the way that Jesus loved, it was selfless, It was others-focused, and it was unconditional. It was selfless, other-focused, unconditional love for all people that Jesus had. This is what we refer to in Scripture as as agape love, the love of God, the selfless, unconditional love for all people, the love of God. And it's only possible to experience this love and therefore then to live it out once we've tapped into the source of it. And that source is, is God. Now, the world tries to substitute things. The world will try to substitute other forms of love in the absence of agape love. When the world has not experienced agape love, it tries to, to, to substitute other, other types. And there's other things. We don't love all things equally, right? Like the love I have for God, the love I have for my wife, the love I have for my truck, for my iPhone, and the love I have for, like, tacos are, are different, there's different levels of love there. I think Nadine would get upset if I said I love tacos as much as her. You know, there's a difference there, right? So there's these different words for love that exist in the language. English language is unfortunate because we only have one word for love. But in Greek, there's multiple words for love. So agape love is just one form, this love for God. Now, Paul, as he moves on here, he pulls out examples that lead towards another form of love that the world often tries to place as, as an important way to express and and be fulfilled in those feelings. And the one that he directs himself towards is what's referred to as eros. Eros love. It's also known as romantic love or or other times erotic. That's where eros, that's where we get the word erotic from, is that type of love. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about eros love. It's not inherently sinful, but there is a danger with it. You see, the danger with this type of love is that sin easily manifests itself in this type because it tends to lean towards things of a sensual nature, things of a selfish nature. It tends to lean much more towards desires of the flesh and self-fulfillment, which as I remember from what I just said about the type of love Jesus examples, selfless, others-focused, sacrificial love is very different than the sinful expression of Eros love. And so he goes on to say this, speaking to the people in the church. He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality 
or of any other kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Again, he's speaking to and about God's holy people here. And there's this warning for them to not engage in these sorts of practices. He doesn't define them for us here, but he says not to engage in them. Now, we can do a little bit of sleuthing and look at some of his other letters, having the benefit of the entire scriptures. We can look at other letters and other writings that he was a part of and understand what he means by these terms. And, and so very briefly, when we understand this term sexual immorality, what he's referring to here are things like, like premarital sex, having relations outside of the covenant of marriage, extramarital, having relationships within the context of the marriage covenant, but not with a person you're married to, extramarital. He also refers in other letters to same-sex acts. We see in today's world things he wouldn't know about that would fall into this category as well. Things like pornography, sexting. Uh, we hear in the news sometimes about cat calls as being outlawed in some cities where, you know, typically it's the construction worker whistling and calling comments down to women as they walk by in the street. That, that would fall into that category as well. Any sort of misconduct where there is uh, abuse taking place where there is authority being exercised over another for personal selfish gain. These would fall into this category. He also then talks about impurity, where basically it's anything that, that is in contrast, anything that is contrary to God's perfect holiness. We talked about a lot of these last week. I won't go into a lot of detail today. You can look back at the last week and the week prior, where, where there's this idea that there is the old self and the new self. And that old self has, has been kind of put to death and we are separate from it. We don't want to go back there and live in those ways. And, and there's things we talked about such as being driven by sensuality, of, of greediness, bitterness, anger, fighting. These types of things are, are related with, with impurity in the old self that we'll be separated from. And then he mentions here greed. Another word for greed is covetousness. Right out of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not covet is where this would come from and find its roots. And the idea here is, is to not lust after what you don't have. Don't lust after your neighbor's house or spouse kind of idea we find in that, in that commandment. And, and we see this in, in the world around us quite often. You know, if you have two kids and you give each of the kids a toy, how long do you think it is until, until the kid doesn't want the toy he has, he wants the toy the other kid has. He puts his aside and wants to grab the other one because there's this desire to have them both or to have what we don't have. We see that in adults' lives as well, this greediness or this covetous that can happen. And it comes from a lack of appreciation, a, a lack of contentment with what God has blessed us with, a lack of contentment with, with who we are and, and being at peace and being at rest and saying, I have self-worth and I have self-value in Christ. He has blessed me, gifted me, equipped me, and positioned me exactly where he wants me. And so to find contentment in that is difficult because we have this tendency to say, oh, the grass is always greener on the other side. So this idea of greediness, covetousness is, is contrary to the contentment that would be in line with the holiness of God. And then in verse 4, he adds to the list. He adds by going not just from immoral actions, but also to include inappropriate speech. And he says, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place. These are out of place within God's people, within the church. These are things like going to work or going to school and, and telling dirty jokes. About being on the basketball court and trash talking. This could be things like, like puffery, where we, we kind of exalt ourselves. We, we puff ourselves up to look more important than we actually are, or, or making rude, harmful comments that can look and, and sound a lot like bullying to another person. These are things that are, that are not becoming of those who are in, the, are in Christ, and especially not within the church, and are definitely not good imitations of God's love. 
So here's the thing. After holding up God's selfless, other-centered, sacrificial love as the example for us to be imitators of, he then says anything that deviates, anything that, that perverts from this is considered immorality. And it has no place within the body of Christ. Anybody who finds himself aligned over here in their actions, their thoughts, their desires, their words, that they fall into that category of being immoral, impure, being greedy, those things that were just listed, and, and they are considered idolaters, which is a very strong language, because if you're an idolater, then you have no place in the kingdom of God. Now, at times, people will read this, and they'll take it to be sort of a, a fearful statement that, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my salvation if, if I'm greedy for my neighbor's Corvette. That, that's not what Paul's talking about here. You see, it's not the message here of losing salvation. What he's referring to are people who are perhaps in the church with this attitude of mimicking rather than imitation. People who are in the church and, and are kind of playing the role, going through, have aligned themselves, at least in their minds, with the commands that we see in Scripture. But there's a sense of tolerance that, that, uh, that all truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. You know, yeah, God said it, but that's relative to the person, the situation, what's going on. It, it refers to people who maybe are practicing religious liberty, where, where all things are permissible under the grace of God. And he refers to these things as idolatrous. The reason being, it's not because as we think of idolatry, they're, they're, they're physically kneeling down to a wooden idol, but the, the idea is the same, where there is something else in their life. There's another opinion, another view, another authority that they have placed above God. And as soon as we have another authority, especially an authority of this world, that we place above God, we're guilty of entering into the realm of idolatry. And he's saying, if you are not aligned in your heart, in your core being with Jesus Christ... If you are not in Christ, but your authority is elsewhere, then you fall into this category of idolatry. And you are still following in the ways of the world. You are still following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and you are without hope, and you are without God, he says in Ephesians chapter 2. And so the question remains for, for those who, who may find themselves in that place, is that are they separated from God? Like how genuine is that faith commitment? How genuine is that step that they took? Did they ever take that step of faith? Are they in the promises of salvation? Now, it's possible to do these things out of obligation and to fall into this realm of mimicking. The command here, however, is to not just know, not just to abide, but to believe and to be shaped in our core being by these truths of God. That we would be genuine imitations of his values and his words as we live this in the world around us. Not of obligation, out of devotion out of devotion for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and who he is. You see, if we believe that God is perfect in love and he is perfect in truth and he is perfect in authority, in morality, and in conduct, then anything that deviates from that, anything that compromises that falls short of God's perfection. And we look at Romans 3.23. What does it say falling short is? Sin. Sin. For all have fallen short, glory of God. For all have sinned. And we're to avoid these sinful actions and strive for those things that measure up, not to distort the glory of God and his truth and ultimate morality and conduct. Now, this is hard. I'm not going to suggest this is easy. This is a hard thing to do because it is countercultural to the world that's around us. It's different than the things that the world may point towards. 
But in the second half of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he is commanding us. Remember, in chapter 4, verse 1, he commands us to live, to walk worthy of the calling we've received. That's what the rest of the letter is about, is walking worthy of the calling we've received. And he does so, he describes this by drawing distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And such a distinction is not meant to repel people. See, the idea here is not to, not to separate the people into two groups so that they never shall meet. It's not to separate the two groups so that they repel each other. The point is that if we are truly living out the love of God, the way Jesus did, people were drawn to him. People were, 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 were crowding around him to experience it. People were not afraid of the truth he shared with them because they knew he loved them. You see, it was attractive. There was something that drew people to him. It didn't repel them because there is a better way. And as people who are in Christ, we have access to tap into the source of that better way. So another way to put this is another way it's stated in the Bible is that, is that the life of one who is in Christ should bring light into the darkness of the world. It should bring light into the darkness of the world. Now, a few times in Paul's letter, he refers back to what it was like in people's situations and their spirits before they were in Christ. And here again, he does the same thing, where he says in, in, in verse 8, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. To live as children of light. The Bible quite often uses these contrasts. It talks about how there is light and there's darkness. There's good and there's evil. There's life and there's death. It uses these contrasts to describe those two scenarios. But when a person accepts the forgiveness, God's work through Christ, as they accept that grace through faith and they become in Christ, it says that they move from darkness to light, from death to life. But notice what it says. It doesn't say in here that you moved out of darkness into light as though darkness was just removed. What does it say? It says that you became a light. When that happened, you became a light. One way I want to explain this, and if, if you're a Star Trek, Star Wars geek like me, you're going to love this. So one way to understand this is, is to imagine that darkness, that this evil and this sin is like a black hole. Okay? It's like a black hole. Black holes are these places in space where gravity is so strong, nothing can escape them. Not even particles, not radiation, not even light can escape the gravitational pull of a black hole. If you were to shine a light towards a black hole, it, the gravitational pull would simply absorb that light and it would cease to exist as light. Which is an amazing thought. I can geek out on this stuff a little bit. Anybody else? That, that light can be absorbed into a black hole. Now, the only way for this black hole to cease being a gravity well of darkness is for it to do something, is for it to birth a star. It's for a black hole to birth a star. And the minute a black hole births a star, light starts to come from the middle of it. And it starts to bring on a new nature. It starts to bring on a new identity. And instead of absorbing light into itself, it begins to cast light forth as we know stars to do. Without Jesus Christ, life is being lived in darkness. 
But when Jesus went to the cross, he bore all of our darkness. He, he became that sin. Like, like the force of a black hole, this unfathomable gravitational pull of his love pulled all sin of humanity into himself. And he defeated it. He defeated it. And when we experience his victory over sin and death, we become reborn. We become reborn as new creations of Jesus Christ. And we are no longer defined and identified by the darkness and the sin. Instead, we become light. We become light to the world around us, which is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world if you are in Christ. Let your light shine. Just let that light shine before other people that they may see your good deeds, not so that they would turn back to you, but that they would see it in you and that they would glorify your Father in heaven because of it. But see, light doesn't only remove darkness. Sometimes we think light is just the absence of darkness. And that is true of light, but that's not all that light does. You see, light also produces and restores. We can see this in, in, in even simple things around us, like plants. If you have a plant in a dark room with no light, no sunlight for a long time, and then you go look at it, what's going to happen? It, it, it's going to be wilted. It's not going to bear any fruit, any, any flowers, any buds, and it's not going to grow. It's going to have stagnated. And eventually, without light long enough, it dies. But you take that plant that is wilted and weak, and you expose it to sunlight. Sometimes it only takes a few hours, and it starts to perk up. Sometimes it takes a little longer. But all of a sudden, life can start to return to it. It gets healthier. It grows stronger, and it can start to produce buds. It can start to produce flowers and fruit that comes out of it. In our spiritual lives, we can see the same thing happen where God's light comes in and it brings life. It takes us from death and darkness into light and life. And suddenly vitality can be seen within a person. And we can start to see the production of fruit of, of morality and ethical character. And, and here's the good, news. the good news, folks. The good news is this. It's that there is nothing too dark. There is nothing too sinful for God's light. There is nothing beyond the power of his light to uncover and to defeat. So often the sins that we find ourselves trapped in, we identify them with, with darkness and aloneness, not, not just metaphorically, but literally. Quite often, most of the sins that are committed are committed in isolation, when we're alone and when we're by ourselves. Maybe think about a sin that's got you ensnared or trapped for too long. The solution is to bring it in the light. The solution is to open the blinds, to allow the light in, to go and to share that burden with somebody else, that they can come alongside you in love and walk with you for a while, to, to get into a small group in, in the church, to, to find a fellowship group where you can share with somebody and you can bring it into the light. That is why it says in verse 14, there's a beautiful verse that uses in, in 14, he says, he says, this is why it says, wake up, sleeper. Wake up and rise from the dead so that Christ will shine upon you. Because when we come out of the darkness 
and we step into the light and we allow the love and the truth of Christ to shine upon us, then no longer will we allow darkness to keep us from the light that's available to us in Christ. No longer will we allow the attitudes of others to cast a shadow on our victory that we can experience in Christ. And no longer will we allow the world to think that darkness is stronger than the light of Christ. Amen? So if we're to walk in a way worthy of the calling we've received, then we are to be imitators of God's love for all people. And we're to be imitators of God's light in a world that is enshrouded in darkness. Now, if we're going to walk in love, if we're going to walk in light, it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to happen by accident either. This is an important point that Paul ends with here. He says it's not going to happen by accident. And so in the final challenge he puts forth, he tells us that we also need to be imitators of God's wisdom, of his wisdom. He says this in verse 15. He says, be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most out of every opportunity. I'm sure we can all look back upon our lives, even the week that just was, and, and find opportunities where we didn't make the most out of every opportunity. You know, last Sunday, for example, Nadine and I had plans to go for a run through the river valley. I, I had a nap instead. I did not make the most out of that afternoon. <laughs> it was a good nap, but I didn't go running. Uh, we booked a vacation back in the fall to, to head down to, to Vegas for a couple of days. We're going to rent a car and go to the Grand Canyon and the Hoover Dam and kind of tour around there. I never rented the car, so we were stuck. <laughs> Didn't make the most of the opportunity. Maybe you can look back on a past relationship or a past conversation you had, and, and you think, man, maybe I could have saved it. You know, maybe I didn't make the most of the opportunity. I, I wish I had spoken love first, or I wish I had controlled uh, my emotions, or, or I wish I had just simply said, hey, I love you. So we look back and not making the most of an opportunity. As the school year wraps up for, for a lot of our students that are heading into exam time, it's a common moment to look back and go, oh, man, I didn't make the most of that semester. <laughs> Wouldn't be so stressed out right now if perhaps I had <laughs> worked a little harder and done the work leading up to exam time here. But see, our spiritual lives can be similar, where you can't just sort of coast. If you don't seize the opportunities that come before you, over time, our spiritual lives will stagnate as well. And we'll find ourselves looking back, going, man, I didn't make the most of that opportunity. You know, I should have done this, or I could have done this. And, and not only do we have those, some regrets of the past, but also we find ourselves starting to fall backwards in our spiritual growth. You see, when it comes to our spiritual life, it's like, it's like a vehicle, if you will, a, a car, but it's not a, a car on a flat road. There, there's a bit, of a, a bit of a slant to it. There's a bit of a grade to it. And either we're in gear and moving forward, or there's two other options. We're in reverse going backwards. That one's obvious. But even on this slight grade, even if we're just in neutral, we're still going to be slipping backwards. You see, there is no neutral in our spiritual formation. Either we're moving forward or we are falling backwards. Because the world around us, the things around us, continue to advance as we sit in neutral. And one of Paul's primary concerns in this second half of the letter, as we read about in, in Ephesians 4, verse 13, is that he wants us all to become mature. He wants us to become mature in Christ, attaining to the whole measure of being in Jesus Christ. So let's be wise. Let's put our car in gear and make the most of every opportunity. How do we do that? Well, I haven't talked about it for a little bit, but you've heard me talk about this before. One way we do it, one important way we do it, is we've got to find our space and place. 
What I mean by that, if you've forgotten, we've got to find our space. Find a physical space where you spend time with God. That could be a, that could be a chair in your office. It could be uh, in the driver's seat of your car as you go to work. It, it could be the couch in your living room. What is that physical space when you walk by it, when you think of it, you think that's where God and I get together. We need to find that physical space. We also need to find space in our calendar. I'm not talking about an all-day retreat here. It can be as simple as 15 minutes. And I know, I know we can all find 15 minutes if we choose to. 15 minutes is not hard to find if we choose to and make it a priority. To find that physical space where we spend time with God. To find that space in our calendar where we carve out time for God. But then where do we find our place? As we spend time reading his word, we find our place in his story. In the story of, 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 of how he created all that was and ever will be and how it's a movement towards expressions of love and wanting to get to know us and, and to save us and to be eternally with us, to find our place in God's story. Another way we can put our car in gear is by, by, by simply through prayer individually, through being in, in collective groups and praying together in small groups and in, in the foyer as a family, getting together for these times of prayer where we share with each other what's happening in our lives. And, and, and as we do some of these simple things, just spending time with God in prayer and reading his word and fellowship with other people, suddenly we can start to move from this sense of, of, of not totally understanding what God's will is for our life to having a clear desire, understanding what his desire is. And now to drive this point home, Paul points to the difference between living a life of wisdom and a life of, of being unwise. Paul points to something that's common in a lot of people's experiences in the past. And he says this in verse 18. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to understand quickly here, this, this verse is not a prohibition against alcohol. That, that's not what he's talking about. He, he is cautioning about excess Absolutely. But it's not a prohibition against alcohol here. If Paul wanted to ban alcohol, he would have said so. He's, pretty, he's not afraid to say not even a hint. He did it back in, in verse 3. Not even a hint of sexual morality. If that was the emphasis he wanted here, he would have placed that and used those words here as well. But he's making a different point. What he's trying to talk about here is what are we going to allow ourselves to be under the influence of? What are we going to be under the influence of? What are we going to allow to control us? Now, the example he uses here, the analogy he uses is one that a lot of people can understand. If we're under the influence of alcohol, it has an effect upon us. It affects our judgment. It lowers our self-control. It lowers our inhibitions. It opens us up to riskier behaviors. And it has a depressive, na a depressive nature upon our psyche. And I think we would all agree that some of the worst decisions that a person has ever made were made while they were under the influence of alcohol. And if you don't have a story from your own life about that, you can go on YouTube and see all sorts of other people's stories about the dumb things they did while they were under the influence of this substance. Now, the alternative is to be under the influence of the Spirit, which also has an effect. It has an effect also upon our self-control, but it strengthens and increases it. It helps to grow our scruples. It produces fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control when we're under the influence of the Spirit. And so if we're going to be under the influence of something, Paul is saying, if you're going to be under the influence of something, be under the influence of the Spirit. Be wise and choose that direction. Instead of waking up the next day with a split and headache, full of shame and guilt of what happened the night before because of being under the influence of something else, he says, be under the influence of the Spirit. 
Because then you find yourselves in a situation where you're in the fellowship of others with this joyous expression, not from intoxication, but from the joy of the Spirit that comes from being in Christ and being in the fellowship of Christ. This joy that comes from God's Spirit being within each one of us. From gratitude for who he is and what he has done for us. For gratitude for the church into which he has placed us. Joy for the, his saving work in us. For the life that he's living in us in the here and now and for the promise of the life that is yet to come. That is the joy that we want to have. That is the, the outcome of being under the influence of the Spirit that Paul's pointing us towards, to allow the Spirit to rule, not the things of this world to rule and to control our minds and our lives and our directions. Now, all three of these, love, life, and wisdom, we're called to be genuine imitations of. It's possible to mimic all three of these. It's possible to simply fake it till you try and make it. But it won't last. It's not sustainable because it's not genuine. There was one time I bought Nadine a, a fake Louis Vuitton purse. And it looked just like the original, just like the authentic thing, until the zipper fell off. <laughs> Zippers don't fall off authentic Louis Vuitton purses. It, that just doesn't happen. Because it did, I had to go buy her a real one. No, I didn't. We can't afford that. <laughs> Those are really expensive. <laughs> but see, you can mimic a design. You can mimic a pattern. You can mimic a fabric. But over time, the authenticity of that item is going to be revealed. So when I talk about being a genuine imitation, I'm saying about being more than just a cheap copy, about just, just acting a certain way or, or trying to look like an original. You see, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, when we accept his work upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, the scripture tells us that we become new creations, where the old is gone and the new genuine has come because our identity has changed completely to be more shaped into the identity of Christ. And at the same time, we are able then to tap into the source of true love, which is God's love, of true light that comes from God, and of true wisdom that comes to us through the Spirit. So we can only find true love, light, and wisdom when we tap into the source, which is only found in God. And they become ours. And then we can live those out in the world around us so that others may see God in us. As Paul said to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't follow him. Follow Christ as he is following Christ. All that's required is for us to surrender our lives. To surrender those areas of our lives that are still in darkness. To surrender our lives to allow him to come into our hearts and, and to, to make us those new creations in Christ. Not only so that we ourselves will experience the love, the light, and the wisdom, but that we too then may be able to go and be examples to others. So I invite you to, to stand with me as we're going to close in prayer here in a moment. I invite you to stand. And as Paul wraps up this idea of being, being in Christ and being under the influence of the Spirit, he says that, we are to sing and make music from our hearts for the Lord. To always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Jesus Christ. We serve a good and powerful God, amen? As you look back upon the week that just was, maybe there are moments where you think, man, I didn't make the most of that opportunity. But I'm sure there are moments where if you look back, you can see where God's presence was. 
He has been with you and he has been walking with you. And we have the ability, because of the work of Jesus Christ, that we can be in Christ, filled with the Spirit. And the Scripture says when we are filled with the Spirit, that we are filled with joy. And so I'm going to quickly pray. But then we're going to sing. And as I pray, I want us to be thinking about where Christ has filled us with joy in the past. So we can come out of this song, or come out of this prayer, ready to sing with exuberance. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to the cross so that, that he can not only be a demonstration of love so that we could tap into the true source of your love and of your light and of your wisdom. God, I pray if there's anybody here who has not taken that step of faith that they would, that they would come forward at the fall in the service to pray with Randy, Randy and Heather that they would then be able to confess that and say, hey, I need to get in Christ. I need to become that new creation, that genuine imitation of who he is. God, if there's those here who have areas of darkness that they need to allow the light not just to come in and to expose, but also the light to come in and to transform. That it would produce, that it would restore, that it would heal those parts of our souls. God, we know that we, as followers in Christ, have the Spirit of God living in us. And I pray, Father, that we would just feel that Spirit well up within us. And that with expressions of joy, we would sing praises to you here in this place, but also in the, in the world that we will go out to in the moments ahead, so that the world too may see Christ in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.